a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world, the mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24.
Turning now to June 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. Editor, Arthur W. Pink, 1886-1952. The seven studies in the contents are The Compassion of Christ, The Epistle to the Hebrews, the life of David, saving faith, profiting from the word, the fight of faith, and grieving the spirit. Study number one, the compassion of Christ. We would ask those of our hearers who are sticklers for mathematical precision to kindly bear with us this time, according to their logical order, the next article in this series should have been upon the kingdom of Christ, but at the moment we feel strongly led to write upon another and different glory of the Saviors. When outward circumstances are sorely trying to flesh and blood, when the soul is cast down by the dark providences of God, when one is out of employment and troubled as to how to make ends meet, it is by no means an easy task to fix one's attention upon a deep doctrinal discussion, though where one is enabled to gird up the loins of his mind, such as often a good mental and spiritual tonic. But having in view the present distress and the pinch of it which many of our hearers are now feeling, when at a time that it almost seems as though every man's hand is against them, probably a simple meditation upon the precious subject of the compassion of Christ will prove more timely. Oh, dear hearer, how deeply thankful we should be that Christ is compassionate, that he is not so far away as to know nothing about the painful trials through which we are now passing, nor so high above us as to be incapable of entering sympathetically into our ways, nor yet so changed in himself from what he was during the days of his humiliation as to be no longer moved to pity. So far from this being the case, the Holy Spirit has graciously assured us that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Hebrews 4.15 These words open to us a soul-refreshing view of the personal affection and tenderness of our all-loving Christ to the Church, which is His body. If we consult the records which God has so graciously given us of the life of His incarnate Son in this scene of sin, suffering, and sorrow, a most blessed unveiling of the heart of Christ is there set before us. But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd, Matthew 9.36. Here 
we see our Lord's tender yearning over the souls of people. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Matthew 14, 14. In this, we see his kindly solicitude for the welfare and comfort of the body. When the poor leper came to Christ for healing, we are told Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Mark 1.41 When the two blind beggars besought his mercy, we read, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Matthew 20.34 When the Lord beheld the bereaved widow of Nain, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not, Luke 7.13 Truly, thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion. Psalm 86.15 Nor has the resurrection and ascension of Christ wrought any change in his heart. Essentially, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8 The compassion of Christ is such that the grievances of his people touch his heart as if they were his own. How plainly this is brought out in Acts 9. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse 4 Saul trod but on the feet, but the head complained. Behold his tender compassion to Stephen, evidenced by granting a vision of himself, Acts 7.56. Mark it again toward the Apostle Paul, quieting his fears on the tempest-tossed ocean, Acts 27.23. Observe it, too, toward the Apostle John, a lonely exile on Patmos, seen in the wondrous revelation sent unto him and by his own reassuring hand. Revelation 1.17 Yet, in spite of these definite scriptures, not a few under the stress of painful trials find it difficult to harmonize their sorrows and sufferings with an all-compassionate Christ who has the power to deliver out of them but does not do so. To carnal reason, it often appears that the Lord Jesus would be exercising more tenderness and manifesting more sympathy were he to speedily bring us out of difficulties and distresses. At such times, Satan asks, Would you allow a dearly beloved one to languish day after day and month after month? Were you able to relieve him? Ah, dear friend, the Lord of glory is not to be judged by feeble sense. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Ecclesiastes 9.1 That is, by things seen. Many of the wicked now have all that 
the natural heart can wish, while many of the righteous scarcely have a dollar to call their own. We are to walk by faith and not by sight, and faith allows nothing to raise a doubt as to the tender concern of Christ for his own. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The Greek word for touched means to condole with, to suffer with others as in 1 Corinthians 12.26. 1. Christ knows all about our infirmities, sufferings, and sorrows. This he does actually, none of them being too small to escape his notice. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Psalm 56, 8, 2. He knows them experimentally. He has been exercised by the same trials. He knows the smart, the weight, the grievousness of them. He knows from actual experience what it is to be wearied, John 4, 6, to be unhungered, Matthew 4, 2, and to say, I thirst, John 19, 28. He knows what poverty is, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, yea, to have not where to lay his head, Matthew 8.20. He knows what it means to lack sympathetic friends, Matthew 26.40, and to be troubled by horrible suggestions from Satan. 3. Not only is Christ cognizant of and possessed of an experimental acquaintance with the sorrows through which his people pass, but he is affected by them, touched with the feeling of their infirmities. What a remarkable word is that in Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted. Christ himself has a compassionate sense of what his people suffer. For, moreover, his sympathy is accompanied with a desire to succor Hebrews 2.18 and relieve them, to do that which is best for them in every circumstance. 5. It is also to be borne in mind that Christ is affected by the infirmities of his people as one who is deeply and intimately concerned in them. It is not the compassion of a stranger, of one who is unrelated by near and dear ties, but that of a friend, Proverbs 18.24, a brother, Hebrews 2.12, and husband, 2 Corinthians 11.2, a father, Isaiah 9.6. What a terrible sin is it then, for any Christian to call into question the tenderness of our great high priest toward his people. Yet is it one which that wretched unbelief still remaining in us is ever prone to commit.
as this is the practical crux in the application of our subject, let us endeavor to throw some light on the seeming difficulty. Here is one of Christ's blood-bought people lying upon a bed of sickness, languishing in pain. Here is another, nursing such an one, fearing that in a short time she will be called upon to give up her loved one. Here is another who is out of work with half a dozen little mouths to feed. Each one cries unto the Lord for deliverance from these trying circumstances, but instead of relief coming, matters seem to get worse. Are these things, such experiences, consistent with an omnipotent Christ who is full of compassion? First of all, let the sorely exercised heart seek to realize by faith resting on God's holy and unerring word that the Lord himself has sent the affliction and that for our spiritual good. O oh, fellow Christian, if the chastening hand of the Lord be now making you smart, it is because he is dealing with you not in wrath, but in love. Hebrews 12.5 What a difference it makes unto a weeping soul to know that the rod too is wielded by tender compassion. Then let each of us seek grace to say with him who has left us an example, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18.11 Second, let us earnestly endeavor to recognize His merciful design in each trial He sends us. He does not afflict willingly, Lamentations 3.33, but because we have given Him occasion to. When the heart has become too much attached to the world, our affections unduly set upon things below. The Lord turns our carnal sweets into bitters and our temporal fountains into cisterns which hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13 So as to wean us from them. When temporal prosperity was our portion, how cold were our hearts toward the Lord how little real praying we did. But as he says, in their affliction, they will seek me early. Hosea 5.15 Ah, oh, my hearer, has not this been your experience? Men cry unto the Lord in their troubles. Psalm 107 Then thank him for them, if they are stirring you up to pray. Again, just as drenching rains, roaring winds, and biting frosts are necessary for the good of vegetation, so trials and tribulations must be our portion if the graces of patience and submission are to flourish in our souls. Third, admire 
and be thankful for the blessed compassion which Christ has manifested by bestowing grace which has enabled you to bear whatever burden he has seen fit to lay upon your frail shoulders. But for his sustaining strength, you would have utterly sunk beneath the load. Of old, God purposely brought his people into a howling desert so as to manifest the sufficiency of his resources to minister unto them. Oh, let us not murmur as did they, and unbelievingly ask, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Psalm seventy-eight, nineteen. Rather, cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall not necessarily remove it, but sustain thee. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. Rest on the Lord, seek his grace. Plead his promises, and thou shalt find that the Lord is a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1 Remembering what he himself passed through down here, the Lord Jesus has a tender and continuing sympathy with his suffering members. He has a deep compassion for each of his tried saints, even when he does not see well to set them free at once from their pains. For not only has he their spiritual and ultimate good in view, but what is yet more blessed, his affections never move him to ignore the sovereign and all-wise will of the Father. Then let not the deferring of the deliverance the postponing of relief cause any to call into question that love which passeth knowledge. Rather let us rest with calm confidence on that sure word. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. David Clarkson 1680 said that the God of glory should have such respect to contemptible creatures as not only to suffer for but also to suffer with them that he should have compassion on us in infirmities which are the effects of sin or in themselves sinful and show tenderness where there is just and proper occasion for his indignation and severity, that he should concern himself not only in those cases where common friends will stand by us, but in our weaknesses where others will be ashamed of us, in dangers and sufferings where others will be afraid, in the sad circumstances of our lives when others withdraw, and where his own best friends on earth deserted him, that he should have such regard for those who are infinitely below him and whom he might pass by with as much disregard as we do flies or grasshoppers, for we are incomparably less to him than these are to us. If these things were in our thoughts, what occasion of wonder 
will they offer to us. How admirable is Christ hereby represented to us. How worthy of all admiration. Unquote. Finally, let it be pointed out what a source of encouragement is there in the precious fact of Christ's compassion for us to address ourselves unto him in all our straits and weaknesses. If he be so concerned in us and our trials, if he be so affected in himself with a sense of them, and have both in his person and priestly office such a propensity to relieve us, then how gladly, promptly, and continuously should we ply him for help and succor. This is the very use which the inspired apostle makes of this truth. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 The Lord graciously add his blessing. Arthur Pink Study number two The Epistle to the Hebrews The Path of Tribulation Chapter 10 Verses 32 to 34 God has not promised his people a smooth path through this world. Instead, he has ordained that we must, through much tribulation, enter his kingdom. Acts 14.22 Why should it be otherwise, seeing we are now in a territory which is under his curse? And what has brought down that curse but sin? Seeing then that there still is a world of sin both without and within each one of us, why should it be thought strange if we are made to taste the bitterness of its products? Suppose it were otherwise, what would be the effect? Suppose this present life were free from sorrows, sufferings, separations, Ah, would we not be content with our present portion? Wisely, then, has God ordered it that we should be constantly reminded of the fact this is not your rest, because it is polluted. Micah 2.10 Trials and tribulations are needful if there is to be wrought in us a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better. Philippians 1.23 The word tribulation is derived from the Latin tribulum, which was a flail used by the Romans to separate the wheat from the chaff. How much chaff remains even in the one who has been genuinely converted? How much of the flesh mingles with and mars his spiritual exercises. How much which is merely natural is mixed with his youthful zeal and energetic activities. How much of carnal wisdom and leaning unto our own understanding there is till God is pleased 
to deepen his work of grace in the soul. And one of the principal instruments which he employs in that blessed work is the tribulum or flail. By means of sore disappointments, thwarted plans, inward fightings, painful afflictions, does he take forth the precious from the vile, Jeremiah 15:19, and remove the dross from the pure gold. It is by weaning us from the things of earth that he fits us for setting our affections on things above. It is by drying up creature streams of satisfaction that he makes his children thirst for the fountain of living water. Tribulation worketh patience, Romans 3.3. Patience is a grace which has both a passive and an active side. Passively, it is a meekly bowing to the sovereign pleasure of God, a saying, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18.11 Actively, it is a steady perseverance in the path of duty. This is one of the great ends which God has in view in the afflicting of His children, to effect in them a meek and quiet spirit. Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience. It is one thing to obtain a theoretical knowledge of a truth by means of reading. It is quite another to have a real and inward acquaintance with the same. As the tried and tempest-tossed soul bows meekly to the providential dealings of God, he experimentally learns what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12.2 And experience hope, which is a firm expectation of a continuance of sustaining grace and final glory. Since then our sufferings are one of the means which God has appointed for the Christian's sanctification, preparing us for usefulness here and for heaven hereafter. Let us glory in them. But let us lift our thoughts still higher. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Hebrews 12.3 Ah, it is unto his image which the saint is predestinated to be conformed. Romans 8.29 First in suffering, and then in glory. Let each troubled and groaning child of God call to remembrance the afflictions through which the man of sorrows passed. Is it not fitting that the servant should drink of the cup which his master drank? Oh, my brethren, the highest honor God confers upon any of us in this life is when he permits us to suffer a little for Christ's sake. Oh, for grace to say with the beloved apostle, 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12.9 If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. 1 Peter 4.14 No man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 Yet afflictions do not come upon all saints in the same form nor to the same degree. God is sovereign in this as in everything else. He knows what will best promote the spiritual good of His people. All is ordered by Him in infinite wisdom and infinite love. As has been well said, God had one Son without sin, but none without sorrow. Yet the sorrow is not unmixed. God tempers His winds unto the lambs. With every temptation or trial, He provides a way to escape. In the midst of sorest trouble, His all-suffering grace is available. The promise is sure. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. Psalm 55.22 And where faith is enabled to rest in the Lord, His sustaining power is realized in the soul. Afflictions are not all that the Lord sends His people. He daily loadeth them with His benefits. Psalm 68.19 The smilings of His face greatly outnumber the frowns of His providence. There are far more sunny days than cloudy ones. But our memories are fickle. When we enter the wilderness, we so quickly forget our exodus from Egypt and deliverance at the Red Sea. When water gives out, Exodus 17, we fail to call to remembrance the miraculous supply of manna, Exodus 16. It was thus with the apostles. When they had forgotten to take bread, the Lord Jesus tenderly remonstrated with them, saying, O ye of little faith, do ye not understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Matthew sixteen five to 10 Oh, how much peace and joy we lose in the present through our sinful failure in not calling to remembrance the Lord's past deliverances and mercies. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee. Deuteronomy 8.2 Sit down and review God's previous dealings with thee. Bring before your hearts His tender patience, His unchanging faithfulness, His powerful interpositions, His gracious gifts. There have been times in the past when your own folly brought you into deep waters of trouble, but God did not cast you off. You fretted and murmured, 
but God did not abandon you. You were full of fears and unbelief, yet God suffered you not to starve. He neither dealt with you after your sins, nor rewarded you according to your iniquities. Instead, He proved Himself to be unto you the God of all grace. 1 Peter 5.10 There were times in the past when every door of hope seemed fast closed, when every man's hand and heart appeared to be against you, when the enemy came in like a flood and it looked very much as though you would be drowned. But help was at hand. In the fourth watch of the night, the Lord Jesus appeared on the waters and you were delivered. Then remember this, and let the realization of past deliverances comfort and stay your heart in the midst of the present emergency. Many of the appeals made unto us in the word of God to do this very thing. Varied and numerous are the motives employed by the Holy Spirit in the scripture of truth to stir up God's children unto constancy of heart and the performance of duty when circumstances seem to be all against them. Every attribute of God is made a distinct ground for urging us to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. The promises of God are given to cheer, and His warnings to stir up our hearts unto a fuller compliance with His revealed will. Rewards are promised to those who overcome the flesh, the world, and the devil, while eternal woes are threatened unto those failing to do so. Faith is to be stimulated by the record given of God's grace, which sustained fellow pilgrims in bygone days. Hope is stirred into action by the glorious goal which the word holds up to view. And as we have said, Fresh courage for the present is to be drawn by us from calling to mind God's goodness in the past. It is this particular motive which the Apostle pressed on the Hebrews in the passage which is now to be before us. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Verse 32. In verses 16 to 21, the Apostle had given a brief summary of the inestimable privileges which are the present portion of the regenerated people of God. In verses 22 to 24, he had exhorted them to make a suitable response to such blessings. In verses 25 to 31, he had fortified their minds against temptations to apostasy or to willful and presumptuous sins. He now bids them to recall the earlier days of their profession and to consider what they had already ventured, suffered and renounced for Christ and how they had been supernaturally sustained under their trials. The force of this was 
Disgrace not your former conduct by now casting away your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. The beginnings of God's work of grace in their souls is here spoken of as being illuminated. The Holy Spirit had revealed to them their depravity and impotency, their lost and miserable state by nature. He had brought before them the unchanging demands of God's righteous law and their utter failure to meet those claims. He had pointed them to the Lord Jesus, who, as the sponsor and surety of his people, had assumed all their liabilities, kept the law in their stead, and died for their sins. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, had shined into their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 Thus, He had granted unto them an experimental acquaintance with the gospel so that they had felt in their own consciences and hearts the power of its truth. How unspeakably solemn is it to note that this too had been the experience of the apostates in Hebrews 6, 4-6, for the very word here rendered illuminated is there translated enlightened. Right after their illumination by God, they were called upon to feel something of the rage of his enemies. At the beginning of this dispensation, those who made profession of Christianity were hotly persecuted, and the believing Hebrews had not escaped. This the apostle would remind them of, after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions. As soon as God had quickened their hearts and shone upon their understanding so that they embraced His incarnate Son as their Lord and Savior, earth and hell combined against them. By nature, we are in the dark, and while in it, we met with no opposition from Satan or the world. But when by grace, we determined to follow the example which Christ has left us, we were soon brought into the fellowship of His sufferings. By such experiences, we are reminded that God has called us to the combat, that as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we are to endure hardness, 2 Timothy 2.3, and need to take unto ourselves the armor which God has provided, Ephesians 6, 10-18, not to speculate about, but to use it. The attitude toward and the conduct of the Hebrew Christians under this great fight of afflictions during the days of their first love is here summed up first in the one word, endured. They had not fainted or given way to despondency, nor had they renounced their profession. 
They failed in no part of the conflict, but came off conquerors. This they had been enabled unto by the efficacious grace of God. They had been wondrously and blessedly supported under their sufferings. From Acts 8 we learn that when the church at Jerusalem was sorely persecuted, its members, so far from abandoning Christianity, were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. Verse 4. How greatly was the captain of their salvation honored by this valor of his soldiers. It is a noticeable fact of history that babes in Christ have often been the bravest of all in facing suffering and death, perhaps because the great and glorious change involved in the passing from death unto life is fresher in their minds than in that of older Christians. Now it was to the recollection of these things unto which the apostles here called the flagging and tempted Hebrews, but called to remembrance. John Owen said, It is not the bare remembrance he intends, for it is impossible men should absolutely forget such a season. Men are apt enough to remember the times of their sufferings, especially such as are here mentioned, accompanied with all sorts of injurious treatments from men. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.